My guest today is Josh Como. Josh is a senior software developer from Montreal. He's worked at organizations like Khan Academy, DigitalOcean, and Gatsby, and is now working as an independent course creator. He recently released CSS for JavaScript developers, an interactive learning experience designed to help JavaScript developers become confident with CSS. Josh, welcome to the show. Well, hello there. Thank you for having me. This is super exciting. Awesome. I'm very excited to have you here because you have had a smash success with your course, CSS for JavaScript Developers. I'm very excited to dive into the details of that. Uh, maybe we can talk about things like, uh, you know, your process for creating it, maybe the impetus for creating it in the first place, and also just some of the details around uh, where it's gone and what it's done. So if that sounds Sweet. good, um, yeah, let's let's dive into it. Maybe tell me about uh, the background for this because uh, you're you're uh, an engineer yourself, um, but you're you're very much into CSS and, and design and and the design stuff that I've seen of yours is just awesome. Like your your website, your blog, super cool designs. You're always posting stuff on Twitter that is just super inspiring design wise. So. Um, uh, tell me a bit about that, I guess. Like, how do you, how did you find yourself being an engineer who's also super well versed in design? Because I think you know the 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 common trope is like most people are one or the other. They're they're super design focused or or super engineering focused. But you seem to be striking the balance. So tell me about that. How you arrived at this place? It's interesting because yeah, I don't really consider myself a designer. Uh, it's just I've designed enough things now by now that I've gotten half decent at it. Um, I certainly haven't done any formal training and even like informal training, like I haven't really intentionally gotten better at it. I think that the, the reason I've gotten okay is a couple of things. Uh, the first is just that I have done a lot of stuff. You know, I started building websites in 2007, 2008. Um, and for all of, and I, I'm like a big side project person. I always like doing stuff just on my own. So I think I have like 300 repos on GitHub and even that, wow. like I only started in 2014 or something. Um, so lots of just like from a blank page starting from scratch building stuff and having to come up with a design for it and uh, i've taken lots of like little shortcuts along the way um like often what i'll do is i will have you know i'll need like a table for an admin dashboard mm -hmm. so i will go to dribble which is a site the designers use and i will search like admin dashboard table and i'll find like three or four examples because uh, I don't want to just like take one example and copy that. Like I do want it to be uh, a unique creation, if only just because like part of it is just, you know, you want to be respectful to the people that you don't want to take credit for something that someone else has done. Right. But you can actually like just by finding two or three examples and saying, OK, I like the spacing of this one. I like the borders of this one and I like the typography of this one. You mix all those things together and you have something that doesn't look too much like any of them, but still mm -hmm. looks half decent. So that's half of it. I think the other part is. Uh, I've always just like naturally been, uh, I've had good relationships with the design teams and the product teams that I've worked with. And mm. I've uh, very intentionally taken advantage of that. <laughs> so if I'm working on something uh, with a designer, when they send a design, I will be, I won't be shy when it comes to like asking questions as to like, hey, like, why are we like, what, how did you determine the spacing for this? Or like, why, mm. why are we using text here instead of icons? Just to try and like, develop that intuition on my own. I've, I have a blog post about this actually, but uh, if you can develop a design intuition, and I don't mean like a full skill set, but just the ability to like, if you're given a design to be able to fill in the gaps yourself, to be able to say, okay, uh, if you can get a sense of the system that was used, uh, because like inevitably, right? No design is perfect or not perfect, but like no design gives you all the information that you need. At some point you're gonna have to make design decisions because maybe you have a tablet view and a laptop view. But like, what happens if you're in the middle of those two things and one of the elements doesn't quite fit, right? So we're always making these like subtle design decisions. Uh, and if you don't have that intuition, you're going to constantly be asking those like, you're going to be stuck waiting on the designer to like answer your question. And it just, it adds uh, like the, the fewer feedback loops you can have, the better, which is why I say like when I first get a design, I'll ask all the questions to understand the system so that when I, you know, later when I'm developing it, when I run into those things, I can make like an educated guess. And of course, there will be times where the designer will say, actually, no, that's not how I was thinking about this. But then you learn from that and your, your sense gets stronger. Uh, so yeah, just like I think over the many, many years of doing that, uh, it's led to some half decent design skills. That's awesome. Um, and it sounds like, you know, a, an intuition for design, it gets perhaps built up over the course of time as you do things like interact with the engineers and, and designers at a company and, and figure things out, kind of pick their brains on stuff. Um, 
how do you do you have any advice as to kind of how to cultivate that design intuition for those who might not have access to to that kind of thing i mean maybe maybe the answer is take your course and you'll get the intuition that uh, <laughs> that you so desire but uh but how can you aside from going to dribble and looking at at work there for example which is something that i do by the way i've done that as part of the design stuff that i've put into my courses uh, so I, I, I support that that tip. But what else can people be, be doing to cultivate that uh, design intuition? Yeah, I would say that, and so I like the, the analogy that comes to mind uh, is I used to be an amateur electronic music producer. And what I noticed is that when I started trying to make my own music, it changed how I heard music. Like all of a sudden, the entire song would be broken into tracks in my mind. Like I could very clearly distinguish between the drums and the bass and, you know, whatever it is. Um, just being conscious, like doing a little bit of research and then being able to analyze the songs I was hearing just made me better at making music. And I think the same thing can be true for design. So just like every human, right? No matter who you are, we'll, we'll see a design and we'll know if we like it or not. We can tell if it's good or not, usually. Right. Of course, there's like subjective preferences, but generally like if Apple designs something, it's going to be different from like if you look at something that someone who has never designed anything before. Like you can you can just see you have a sense that it's pleasing in certain ways. Um, so I think like just being open, like just noticing, you know, being like self-observant, like just changing uh, when you see something, like trying to figure out if you like it and why you like it. Um, mm -hmm. Just like being a little bit more observant that way can be helpful. I also think that, and I don't know if this is just me, maybe this is just me, but whenever I build anything, I always think it's fantastic. Like as I'm going, I'm like, oh, this is so great. And then, you know, you come back to it a week later and it's just like, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I feel that so the, what I, the trick that I've come up with that is I will be very, very quick to get an initial draft out. Like I will be very like loosey goosey, just throwing like, not even caring about code quality, just like getting everything ready. Then mm -hmm. I'll take a couple days away from it. Then I'll come back and I'll see like, hey, like, what do I think about this now that I'm not like two inches away from it? Like now mm -hmm. that I've had some distance. Um, and that's like, like that process will happen inevitably. But by trying to like systematize that, you can have more of those cycles and get mm -hmm. better quicker, I would say. That's, that's awesome. I, I think that's really good advice. I, I suffer from the same thing where it's like I'll, I'll whip something up in Figma. It looks pretty good, I think. Uh, then I step away for a little while and I come back and I'm like, oh, this is not that good. Or like <laughs> something has happened where I've looked at another design in the interim and all of a sudden I'm convinced that it just, it, it's no good at all. Um, what are some of these like maybe principles, things that inevitably lead to pretty decent design, things that people can keep in mind, whether it be things like, you want to have a certain proportion of padding in your elements. You want to do this and this with margin or, or, or whatnot. I, I know we can go very deep here, but do you, do you have any kind of like uh, top of mind, kind of best bang for buck things that pe people can be looking towards to develop something that, that generally looks pleasing? You know, it's tricky. Spacing is one of those things that I have yet to come up with the shortcut for. <laughs> uh, other than just finding, like, something I've actually done before is I will find a design that I like that has broadly the same layout. It doesn't have to be exact, but if it's like mm -hmm. we're making a marketing page that has a headline and a little paragraph underneath and some image on the side, just find some example of that and steal the spacing exactly. Like, using, okay. like, I like to use macOS's screenshot tool because if you go to create a screenshot, it, you can draw a box. Uh, that'll tell you the size in pixels of that box. Then you can just click escape and it won't actually take the screenshot. I know mm -hmm. there are tools for Windows. I don't think the Windows built-in screenshot tool will do this, but I know there are equivalents. Um, so you'll to, like, use that to get the actual pixel dimensions for the thing that you're trying to emulate? Yep. Like I'll say, okay, there's this heading. Uh, <laughs> that heading looks like it has some gap between, like there's a big heading and a small paragraph. Like residency, there's, okay, there's 42 pixels between those two things. And then okay. there's another 78 pixels between the like image below that. So getting like those measurements, uh, I actually do this probably more than I should, which is I'll come up with like a scale. Like I'll say, okay, I'm going to use eight pixels as my uh, measuring thing. So every distance should be a, a multiple of eight. Mm -hmm. But then you measure these things and it's like, okay, it's 42 pixels. Do I pick like 40 or 48? But I, I do actually dip outside of those scales pretty often, especially when it comes to like, like I want the text to look aligned and there's just mm -hmm. this built-in natural gap. Like, I don't know what it's called, but if you have large text, especially, you'll see there's like three or four pixels between the start of where the box of text is and where the start of that first letter is. So I'm always mm -hmm. like making these small pixel, small pixel tweaks. But yeah, in terms of like uh, getting better at spacing, it is uh, one of the few things in design that I think it really is just practice. 
because yeah. it, it's hard to to come up with like a bunch of rules. It, so much of it is yeah. just like intuition. It's like, oh, that looks right. And honestly, there's. I feel like the difference between something that looks professional and something that looks amateurish often just is spacing. Like you see these really minimal designs that look super polished and then you look at like you try to do that and it doesn't look anywhere near as good and often spacing is like the biggest reason why, which is right. frustrating because I don't <laughs> I don't have like a quick way around that. Yeah, yeah, it seems like the slippery thing that, that is hard to get a, a grasp on. And I've felt that for sure. It's like, you know, I've been mindful to to apply spacing or try to apply spacing in, in various ways to, to get a design to look good. But, but in the process of doing so, I'm always second guessing myself whether the amount of spacing that I'm using is actually looking good or if it just kind of looks good in the moment. And then if you add other elements into the mix, it kind of throws things off. So definitely a tricky thing to to capture. And perhaps this is something that uh, that you cover in your course, which we'll, we'll roll into talking about <coughs> CSS for JavaScript developers. I, I wonder, um, you know, something, something that I've been curious about is it's a very kind of specific and unique way to approach teaching CSS. It's uh, CSS specifically for JavaScript developers. And so why did you choose to kind of target that group of people in particular uh, for for teaching it? Is, I mean, the argument could be made, you could teach CSS for everyone or CSS for um, web developers or something like that. Why JavaScript developers particularly? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I should also clarify that my course doesn't really touch on much design stuff. I'm trying to like sneak a bit of it in around the edges, but really it's like, for the most part, we assume you have a design. This is just how do I learn the tools and systems to turn that design into like a well-implemented, responsive, adaptive thing. Um, in terms of why JavaScript developers, I just noticed that there were so many great resources for CSS but not really any for a lot of the work that myself and other people are doing. So we're working with frameworks like React or Vue or Angular, and those frameworks come with their own ways of doing CSS. Like in Vue, you have single file components that come with built-in scoping. In React, we have like any number of like dozens of solutions. Um, and it does, you know, it doesn't change the underlying mechanics of the language, but it does change how you write and which parts of that language you need to care more or less about. And just one example, um, Specificity is one of those things in CSS. Uh, just to like explain it, the idea is you can have multiple styles affecting the same element, and there's this whole complicated battle that happens where like this rule is more specific than that rule, so it wins. If you make something an inline style, it's even more specific. You can use a bang important, right? Exclamation important to like that's like the nuclear option. Like you want right. this thing to apply no matter what. Um, I don't find I have that many specificity, specificity issues when it comes to working with React. And a big part of that is that my styles are often right there with the component. And those styles are the only styles that apply to this component other than like maybe some very, very baseline like global styles for paragraphs mm -hmm. or headings. So like before you would have like three or four CSS files that all maybe target the same thing with these gargantuan, you know, it's like hash header uh, greater than dot head. Like there's all these like complicated selectors. Now we're just writing styles that are like one-to-one, -one, especially if you use something like styled components. It's all one-to-one. Mm -hmm. -one. So uh, there is a lot that you can learn. I think like naming conventions, right? Like BEM or, or SMACS, I think yeah. that's how you pronounce that. Um, mm -hmm. I have no need for those things. They are very valuable yeah. tools if you are doing like vanilla HTML, CSS, and I'm sure that they're useful in many other contexts as well, but it's just not a problem that I have. Whereas conversely, like there's a bunch of stuff that in terms of like component architecture and keeping like your style scalable as your project grows, that you will just not be prepared for at all if you take a, a random CSS book off the shelf because it's a whole mm -hmm. different kind of world. Right, it's the same language, but uh, it, it's, it's, it's like presented in a way, mm -hmm. it's used in a way that totally changes the parts of that language that can be most important. Mm -hmm. That's <clears throat> excuse me. That's really interesting. Um, I've considered that. I've considered the fact that CSS is not quite the same flavor when you're dealing with it in a JavaScript framework. If you're like, uh, you know, you can take the example of uh, I've done a lot of Angular in the past. I don't do that much of it anymore. But you get generally in your components, you'll get a CSS file that lives alongside the you know the, the the typescript file for that component and you're scoping your css and you've got all sorts of like things that you can do with like encapsulation and stuff like that too but in general <clears throat> the lesson there is like the css for your component is going to apply to that component and and to, to nothing outside um so that that i 
my my approach to CSS, I'm, I'm thinking back to my early days when you know I was learning all these selectors, these like complicated selectors, like you mentioned, where you can uh, target siblings and you can target uh, things based in a certain nested fashion, etc. And what I noticed when I started moving over to, to frameworks more so is that I wasn't using those kinds of selectors anymore. There was no need for them. There was not uh, this this need to like get very specific with with what you're targeting. And a lot of the reason for that is just the architecture of of the framework that you're using. So I feel like I've lost a lot of uh, my my initial kind of muscle with with CSS and and, and knowing about the cascade. Like I, I can hardly I, I I'd hardly be able to reason about the cascade anymore at this point. Um, is that something that you you would go into I suppose in your course? Is you're you're talking about uh, stuff that uh, is right at the root of CSS, uh, stuff that is very kind of vanilla CSS, um, or or maybe another way to put it is give us give us a little bit of a, a glimpse into your course, like kind of the more specifically the material you might be might be teaching. Yeah, oh, I'm happy to talk about that. I will also just say, uh, I thought up, uh, not necessarily like a different answer, but a, a further addition to the answer to the last question, which is like, why is it just for JavaScript developers? Um, part of it is just, yeah, it's a different subset of CSS that is important. But the bigger thing really is that I noticed just on Twitter, there was so much frustration with CSS amongst hmm. JavaScript developers. Like, if you see someone complaining on Twitter, and if you are in the same bubble that I am, and I assume you are as well, yeah. um, it's like you just see people complaining about it and just hating it and finding it so frustrating. And I can relate to that because I used to find CSS super, super frustrating as well. And honestly, I still find it every now and then it still gets me. But for the mm -hmm. most part, I, I have confidence now because I have this uh, pretty deep understanding of the different le rendering algorithms and how CSS is structured. Mm -hmm. um, so I really like writing CSS now. So that was like the main thing was I wanted to make a course. There were like three or four things I knew I could teach pretty well. I've been teaching at a boot camp for a few years. So I, I have that kind of, uh, you know, I, I've done enough of it to know that I enjoy it. And it really, it was just like optimizing for the thing that had the greatest need, right? Like, what can I create that will have the biggest impact that will, you know, in 10 or 15 years from now, if a developer takes my course, they'll still be benefiting every day as they, they build interfaces. It's still, it'll right. still be helping them then. Uh, and so like when I took that lens to it, it was very clearly like, oh, I need to do this. And it should be specific to JavaScript developers because there's already mm -hmm. a bunch of great CSS resources that either they aren't using because it's not specifically built for them or they have used and didn't help. So that's yep. <laughs> that's that. Sense, I yeah. I feel like I've taken us on a bit of a tangent, and I forget. Right. The the next question was like how the course is structured. Yep. Um, for that, yeah. So there's ten modules. It's funny because you know for all of that we've been talking about about it's for CSS uh, for JavaScript developers. I'd say eighty percent of the course is just CSS mechanics. So we talk about flow layout, which is kind of the OG layout of the web. That's what most of the first module is about. We talk about positioned layout, so relative, absolute, fixed, sticky. We talk about flexbox, and we're going to talk about grid. That's a module I'm going to be working on soon. We also talk about responsive. It's like essentially everything that you need to know to build a modern application from the CSS side. So we don't really touch much on the JavaScript side. Um, I do have a module on component architecture. So for that, we use React and styled components. I do say, like a lot of people have reached out and said, like, I, I, I'm interested in the course, but I've never used any JavaScript framework. And my advice is always, uh, you probably shouldn't take it uh, just because mm -hmm. there is that assumed knowledge. Even though, honestly, 80% of the material is just vanilla CSS, the 20% turns out to be really important and it's scattered throughout the course. It's not just all at the end. So right. uh, yeah, in terms of structure, um, it's just CSS mechanics. And mm -hmm. I think the, the one thing that I'm really pleased with how, how it's going is I created my own course platform. So mm -hmm, rather yeah. than use something like Teachable, I decided that uh, the thing that I wanted to do would not be possible on any <laughs> sort of platform like that. And the thing that I wanted to do was have it be really interactive. That's like a big right. theme to my blog is if I'm writing a blog post about spring physics, I want to have like little spring drawings that you can pull and drag on and then watch the yeah. thing kind of bounce around in a springy way. Um, mm -hmm. And granted, you can do something like you could embed like a code pen, right? Like I could have an article that would have these code pen links that maybe the platform would support like an iframe. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's just it's not the same. It's not uh, it's you, you gain so much by having complete control. Like I can put whatever yeah. bespoke react element I want right in the way. And so I've created a few mini games, even like just small nice. little exercises. Like one of them is about margin collapse. So I just I'll give you a bunch of boxes and it's like a puzzle. You have to drag the boxes to the right place. Mm -hmm. uh, keeping in mind like what the margins do in these different circumstances. So if you have mm -hmm. like a pink box inside a blue box and that blue box has margin top 30 pixels, 
where does that blue box go? Uh, so stuff like that is, uh, I think, really cool. That uh, It took probably, it added like three or four months <laughs> to the development yeah. of this course, but I'm really happy that I, I took the time. Yeah, that's really cool. I actually wanted to chat with you about that. Is your your custom built platform? Um, because I saw that on Twitter that you you had been building your own custom platform, and it's certainly something that adds a lot of overhead, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, that's that's always the argument these days. Is like if you're going to teach a course, do you use something like Podia or Teachable or or one of these other ones, or do you build something on your own? Since you know, if you're a developer teaching other developers, arguably you can build your own platform if you want to. I've I've done both myself. I pr for the stuff that I teach, I probably would not build my own platform again. Like, I, there's not a good argument to be made that that it should be a custom platform because you, for me, I'd be recreating a lot of the functionality of like Podia, which is what I use now, right? Um, but in your case, the interactivity bits were, were really key. What else has been beneficial, I wonder, about building your own custom platform that you might not see in other area, in other platforms that you, you, you might use? I, I, I'm guessing you save a bit on the, the fees that might be charged uh, by a, a platform provider. Uh, anything else that's been surprising or, or, or has been good about having your own platform? Yeah, a couple things. Uh, one, there's like the selfish thing, right? And the selfish thing is I am a developer. I like building things. I'm having a lot of fun building this platform. And I, I always want to be building something. Like, you know, if I, uh, if I focused entirely on the content, I would probably burn myself out on it. Because mm. I like making content, but it's, you know, I really, really like building things. And the fact that I ha can spend like probably 30% of my time is just spent on the platform itself. Uh, gives me like a nice bit of, you know, I'm bouncing between content creation and platform yeah. work and it's fun. I enjoy it. Um, so that's like something that honestly, I don't think, uh, you know, that's, it's, it's selfish and it is particular to myself, right. but that was honestly, like if I'm being honest about it, that was a pretty big part of the motivation was just, I liked the idea of doing it and I, I thought it would be fun. Uh, awesome. But there's one other thing that I think, because you make a good point, right? Like if you're teaching security in React, it's, uh, it doesn't have the same kind of visual interactive. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you could still do cool things, but it doesn't feel as critical. Yeah. But the thing that I do really like that I can do, and, and this also is kind of uh, a bit of my trademark, is I can be really whimsical in like the onboarding process. So I have this thing right. where I have some uh, canvas fireworks that go off after you buy the nice. course. Uh, I have this like custom invitation flow that includes like a 3D rotating envelope that we're going to figure out how to build in the course because it's it's nice. too much fun for it to just be used for that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's like little things like that. Um, and honestly, I think it helped justify the higher price tag for the course. The fact that mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. a custom platform. You know, I sold it at 129. That's the like early access price. It's going to launch at 349. That's an expensive course. Like it's not, yep. uh, especially when you compare it to things like on Udemy, everything continuously $10. It is yeah. certainly a premium cost. Uh, yeah. And I think, granted that there are plenty of ways to justify that. Like you can do all kinds of things. You don't have to build your own platform to justify a high cost, but you have to mm -hmm. make it clear that it's worth that high cost and a custom platform done right is a, an excellent way to do that. Yep. Excellent. I, I, I think that's, that's spot on. It, it, it definitely gives me as a consumer of content, the, the feeling that it is a premium course, if it's a custom platform, especially one that looks so good as, as you've applied your design uh, skills to it. Um, if you go to somewhere like Udemy, or if you're looking for some, you're looking at a course on Gumroad or Podia or whatever, there is this sense that like, this is, this is a place where I go to buy courses. Like this is this is the equivalent of like the 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 magazine rack at a store almost, right? Where you may, you're interested in that specific content, but you're not going to pay a maybe you're not going to pay a premium price if if it doesn't you know look better than your typical magazine rack, as it were. Um, mm -hmm. So so I'm right there with you. I I think the. Um, the course has been doing very well from what, what I've seen. You, you've done, uh, you put together a blog post detailing about where you were at. And I, I, I won't even say the number that you put in your blog post because I bet you anything it's higher now. So give us, a, give us an update on, on where the course is at sales-wise. Yeah, so it's actually not much higher now. And the reason for that okay. is that I only kept sales open for a week. So in that oh, first yeah. week, okay. it did, I think, 500, <laughs> it was 574,000 USD. It's now at 581 just because there were a few people, quite a few people that messaged me before the deadline and asked for an extension. So I was happy to grant those. Um, awesome. That was part of the like, which is wild, right? Like it's way, way yeah. more than I was expecting it to do. Um, <laughs> And I have some thoughts about 
like what you were mentioning too about uh, Udemy and the magazine racket, it's such a good analogy. Uh, I think that the reason I was able to kind of go this route is just that I had spent so many years uh, trying to help the community. Just like, mm -hmm. honestly, the idea of creating a course is a relatively new, or at least it's a relatively new focus. It's not necessarily a new idea. It's something that I had in the back of my mind for, for many years. Um, but just the fact that I had been blogging and creating community mm -hmm. resources, um, you know, the, the, it's almost like a stereotype now of building an audience. Uh, it's not really how I see it. Uh, I guess it is, you know, it, it, ultimately it's a, a matter of semantics. It is an audience, but I don't really think of it as, I'm not just like, you know, at a podium, like presenting. Yeah. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm chatting on Twitter and sharing things that I think are cool. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, the thing with Udemy and this like kind of this, this competition of, uh, you go to Udemy, you search, okay, I want to learn CSS or Flutter or whatever else. Mm. It gives you 75 course results. <laughs> and <laughs> you don't know any of the creators. Like, it is kind of a, a totally different purchasing flow, a totally different experience yeah. where, uh, and there, I'm, both of these strategies can be super successful. I mean, you can just tell that there's people on Udemy that have done very, very well that have helped a lot of people. Mm. Um, but for that, you, you kind of have to, there's like a, an SEO game where you have to make sure that you're one of the top results. There's this kind of self-perpetuating thing where the more reviews a course has, the more likely it is to, you know, people buy the one that has good reviews. Right. So I, I'm not sure how you uh, go that route anymore. But uh, my, the way that I went is kind of totally different where I just, uh, nobody that bought my course, as far as I know, I'm sure there are people, but they weren't like deciding that day to buy a CSS course and they yeah. stumbled on mine as the one they wanted to buy. It was right. more that like they've been following my work and they liked the idea of learning uh, what I had to, to teach. So yep. it is kind of a very different, very different thing. Uh, but to talk a bit about the sales and w why uh, it has stopped. Uh, essentially, I, I did an early access launch. So the course was about 50% done at that point. This was early March. and. Mm -hmm. I still have another 50% of the course to build. And it took me about six or seven months to get that first 50%. Um, so my thinking was, uh, let me open it to what I, what I expected was many, many fewer people, but some number of people. Um, but then I wanted to close it because I didn't, uh, I kind of suspected that with the constant drip of new people coming in, it would add to my like customer support duties. Mm -hmm. And I imagined that being really tricky to balance with developing building the platform, developing content, and kind of helping customers, uh, mm. which I still spend probably about an hour a day uh, just in Discord, chatting with people yeah. or answering support tickets. But that has slowed way down. For like three weeks, I was doing eight hours a day of that. Wow. Um, yeah, it was it was intense. I mean, you know, it's, it's a fantastic problem to have, and I'm incredibly uh, fortunate and privileged and just, uh, it's incredible. Um, but certainly, yeah, like I'm, I'm glad now to be at a point where, because I no one has bought the course in weeks now, uh, mm. it, it's slowing down and I'm able to focus more on that content. The goal long term is to make it open and just, con you know, I had kind of played with the idea of doing cohort based things mm -hmm. where uh, I would essentially open it for a week every couple months. Uh, and I, I still may do that. But mm -hmm. ultimately, I think that, uh, you know, I don't like the idea of someone wanting to learn it and just not be like having to wait. It also like there's like kind of a gross mark internet marketing thing. Like a lot of people do this specifically because it can be good for sales. And I don't this time, I, I feel like I, I allowed myself to do it this way because I legitimately needed to have the focus to finish the course. But once the course right. is done, I think that it's uh, it'll just be open and uh, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, tell me about the, so like the, this concept of, of opening up a course before it's completely finished. Um, you know, it, I guess there's there's various ways you can you can approach this. You can do like a, a pre-sale where you you don't have anything done, but you say I'm gonna create this thing and and come and get a, a stellar discount at the beginning. Um, then you can do something like an early access thing, like you did, or you can wait until it's all done, release it, and, and stuff like that. Did you um how did you arrive at the the decision? I suppose to do the early access uh, kind of release like you did. Was it like you got to a point where you, you thought, oh man, I got a lot more of this course to create, but I want to get something out there, uh, and, and especially because I want to gauge interest um, early on. So let's release something now. Uh, or, or was there more kind of thought than, than that into it? I, I've seen people like, for example, Adam Wathen, he I think he pre-released a course before any of it was done, and then he had to create it all after the pre-sale opened up. And he said it was quite a stressful thing that he wouldn't want to do again because it, it meant, you know, <laughs> the onus is on him now to, to actually deliver, and that's a bit of a stressful position to be in rather than just create the whole thing and then and then not be stressed about it. Um, so, yeah, I guess what are, your, what are your thoughts on that? How did you kind of, like, put it another way, would you would you do it any differently, I suppose, uh, next time around, or or if you could redo it? 
Yes. <laughs> so okay. my thinking there was I left my job. I was working at Gatsby. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the process that brought me here was a little unusual, which is I injured myself. I got a repetitive stress injury mm. and I spent about eight months not really able to use a keyboard or mouse, particular, particularly annoying repetitive stress injury. Yeah. Um, and I got reasonably comfortable using a computer without a keyboard and mouse. I was using dictation and eye tracking, which was mm. a fun learning experience. But it, it, you know, the, the takeaway lesson for me was I shouldn't assume that I have an unlimited amount of time. Like the, mm. the, 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 the idea that stuck in my head was, you know, at some point, hopefully, you know, 60 or 70 years from now, um, I will look back at my life and will be able to count the number of times I pressed a key on a keyboard, right? There will be some mm. very large number of keystrokes I will perform in my life. And mm. I should be spending those keystrokes on things that I really, really want to be doing, right? I shouldn't be spending mm. them. Uh, and I, like, I liked my job, so it wasn't a matter of like uh, this drudgery of working at a job I didn't like. It was more a matter of I have this thing I really want to do. Um, I've just been putting it off because I figured there was all the time in the world to do this thing. Right. Uh, but I should, I should hurry up and get to that. So I don't think I would do it uh, exactly the same again. The reason I did it this way was uh, I started working on this course and my plan was to launch the finished course in January. I think I left my job in August-ish, maybe July or August. So I figured, okay, let me take, you know, half of the year, right? The second half of 2020. Let me spend that time on creating a course and launching it. And as I started getting, you know, as we got into the fall, I started realizing that, oh goodness, this isn't, this isn't going to be ready in time. Um, and I gave myself a deadline. Okay. I said, okay, let me do it until the end of February. At that point, I will either launch a finished course or I will early launch, like do an early access of whatever I have at that moment. Um, and as, that's as far as I got, right? I got halfway through the course in that time. Uh, and I wanted to do that because I felt like I had a lot of, uh, it was like risky, right? Like I did have, I was very privileged and I had some savings. So I wasn't under any immediate financial stress. I didn't have any real income to speak of since from August until, you know, my course launched in March. Um, but I was watching my bank account like slowly drain and figuring that this could be a disaster. <laughs> like I could launch this in a year and a half. Like it might take me forever. I might be like really running out of money and I might launch it and it might not really sell and then I'll be in this really precarious position. So I thought better to like launch it now and uh, either get kind of the uh, motivation that I need and you know the, the, the financial benefit of knowing that I now have a bit of breathing room mm -hmm. to finish this course or if it doesn't do well then I imagined I would just refund everyone's money and go get a job doing something else. Um, so that was really the, the thinking. Uh, granted, now that I've done it, it's not, uh, the only thing that I, I the reason I think I won't do it this way in the future is now there is the sense of obligation because people have paid mm -hmm. money for a thing that doesn't really exist yet. Uh, right. And honestly, this is, it's the smallest thing in the world to be complaining about. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I certainly don't mean to say that this is a bad situation, but I think I would prefer to have launched when I was completely finished. And right. uh, like, certainly I think for my next course, that's what I'm going to do because I'll have the ability to spend as long as it takes to work on it um, and reasonable comfort the, the other thing, too, that you mentioned was about kind of validating demand, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, it's part of the calculation. Let's not spend a year plus building this thing with no idea if it will sell or not. Yeah. And I think that the way that I validated that demand was just through my other kind of like, so tweeting and building mm -hmm. a mailing list, right? I think I, I got my mailing list from, I think it was about 800 people at the start of the year in 2020 to now it's just over 30,000 or just under wow. 30,000, it's around there. Huge. So it has grown yeah. tremendously. And uh, all of that has just kind of uh, given me, it's reinforced the idea that this is a thing people are interested in. Granted, right. there is still maybe a little bit of a, an assumption that I'm making that just because people are interested in something doesn't mean they'll necessarily pay for it. But I do think it's like within the realm of, you know, we know people buy courses and we yeah. know people, uh, developers are interested in getting better at development. So. It, honestly, it doesn't feel. Uh, my next course, I think I will rest pretty easily knowing that, you know, I mean, I have no idea about how well another course will do, but I feel confident mm -hmm. enough that it'll be, it'll do well enough to justify the time spent on it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's really cool. What what were some of the ways that you validated? You mentioned like, you know, you, you'd get good responses on Twitter. People would like the thing that you're doing. Did you do it? Like, did you go so far as to put out like, I don't know, like the question or, or a survey or something saying like, would you buy my course for X number of dollars? Or was it more like intuitive that you, you got this sense that I'm pretty sure people will will pay for this? Like in, in my own example with my security course, 
uh, I put out a free course initially, um, and my, my my I guess my goal or, or my my approach was I'm going to put out this free course. Uh, you know, it, it'll be a, it'll be a, like a night. It'll be something that you would probably that most people would pay for. I'll make it you know I'll make it that good, and see what it does in terms of signups. If I get a lot of interest, then I can be reasonably sure you know, that it, that acts as a proxy for potential interest in in going further, like the more advanced going into the more advanced aspects of that topic. So yeah, like what were some ways that you validated that people would hand over their money for the stuff you were going to give them? Yeah, honestly, I didn't. <laughs> okay. I, you know, I, I did, I think at some point I did tweet something like, uh, if I packaged everything I know about animation in a course and sold it for $100, would you buy it? Hmm. Um, it was a Twitter poll. I honestly, I don't remember what the results were. I, I kind of, I realized after posting it, but it's, there's not really, like, you know, it's very different asking someone if they will buy something versus asking yeah. them to buy it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the uh, the what the proof, if you can call it that, was just a matter of like, I would tweet about lots of different things and my CSS tweets. And it's actually, it's interesting. When I started, uh, like I would say for the people that were familiar with my blog or my, my Twitter account, if you would ask them a year and a half ago, like what, how would you categorize this person? It would have been mm -hmm. primarily like animation, React, maybe some JavaScript. Um, in fact, like on Twitter, and this is something I don't know if people know, but whenever you add someone on Twitter to a public list, the person mm -hmm. you are adding to that list gets a little notification and it says like, you know, so-and-so has added you to uh, JavaScript developers. That's like the name right. of their list. And so a year and a half ago, I would always be getting added to these React lists. And over time that has shifted and now it's almost always CSS. Uh, and part of that is like there's a bit of a chicken or egg thing, chicken and egg right. thing, uh, because I started, I, I noticed that my CSS tweets were doing particularly well. So I started sharing more stuff about CSS uh, and it kind of mm -hmm. just uh, it grew on its own kind of organically like that. Um, but yeah, it was really just a matter of I could tell there was interest in this thing. Mm -hmm. And it gets back to what we were talking about earlier, too which is I saw that there were lots of people on Twitter that were frustrated by CSS. Uh, certainly, it was clear to me that people were experiencing pain, right? They were frustrated right. by this thing. And I felt pretty confident that I could produce something that would solve at least some of that frustration. Yeah. Uh, I say with my course that like the, the stretch goal is to get people to really enjoy writing CSS. Mm -hmm. But if I can get you to stop finding it frustrating, like that's, I'll take that. Uh, either way is good. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think that's that's a really key way to tell if something is going to, uh, if you can sell it, is is looking for the complaints, looking for people that are, you know, the, where where you can draw out the fact that they are truly frustrated by something. And it, you know, I see that definitely with CSS on Twitter all the time. Um, it's like you know, CSS is like the hardest language there is. It's way harder than JavaScript. Like you, you see these. I mean, we're in the same Twitter bubble, so we see the same thing. Um, you know, you see tweets like that all the time. Yep. So that's. That's a great way to, to validate, I suppose. Um, what would you say for, so, if, you know, a lot of listeners are people who would be interested in, in potentially doing, making a course, uh, growing, an growing an audience, doing all the things you've done. What, uh, what would you recommend if someone is like, you know, pretty, pretty new on the scene or if they really haven't put a whole lot of thought into this yet? Where, do, where does somebody get started? Like what, what's the best way to, to make a foray into this, uh, this kind of world of building up an audience and creating a course? Yeah, I would say that uh, creating a course probably shouldn't be the first thing, but I think that uh, it, it's very difficult to find success doing something like that unless you have like a group of people that you know will be excited about this thing that you're building. And that's kind of the mistake that I see is people will start creating a course and it could be the best course, but it's going to be difficult for them to just even raise awareness about it. Um, mm -hmm. So the way that I started was I started a blog. And in fact, I think my first blog post, I, w I started on Medium. Mm -hmm. And it was in 2014 or so that I started uh, writing blog posts on Medium. And it's funny, a lot of these posts are still like hidden in their obscure corner of the internet. And they still have like 17 views, 114 views. Like they are not popular posts. Uh, mm -hmm. And they're not very good <laughs> either. <laughs> I've gone back and looked at them and it's like, oh goodness. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think that that's... Uh, in a way, it's almost a bit of a blessing that it's the kind of thing that takes time. Because I think that right. writing is a skill. And just, you know, if you have an idea in your head, right? And often I think the best blog posts are ones that are, I had a problem, I recently learned a solution to that problem, here mm -hmm. is my solution, right? Like that's the best. Because you, if you're running into a problem and if you weren't able to immediately solve that problem with a Google search, that's like such prime territory because now you mm -hmm. can be that Google result that helps the next person. 
but that belies how difficult it actually is because you have a solution in your head and that solution is based on a mental model, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so you can share the code that solved your problem, but unless the, the, other, the reader's problem is like literally so similar that they can copy paste it, right? Usually it's like a more broad thing than that where it's like, oh, I, I misunderstood how stacking contexts worked in CSS and it led to this weird Z index issue. Um, mm -hmm. So the process of like taking your fresh understanding and packaging it into an article that can transfer that understanding to someone else is not an easy thing. Um, it is actually, I think it's, it's, you are helped by the fact that you recently learned it because the longer you know something, the harder it is to remember right. what it was like not to learn it. Uh, yep. But that's like, so that's like the advantage. The disadvantage is when you're starting out, just writing is difficult. So uh, the way that I started was I just started and honestly, I thought of it mostly as something I was doing for myself, where I wasn't really trying. I had no, in 2014, I had no idea that courses, online courses were even like a thing, really. Mm -hmm. um, so I was just two parts, right? One or two motivations. One was just, I'm going to forget this solution, right? I know this thing now, I am going to forget it. If I write mm -hmm. it down, I will have reference later. Um, so just to help future Josh, right? Um, and the other thing was, I thought maybe like my, my ambition then was maybe this will help me get a job at Facebook at some point, right? Like maybe mm -hmm. if I do become kind of known as a writer, it'll help me in my job hunt as I get further sure. in my career. Um, so those were kind of the motivations and it took a long time before anyone read my blog posts. But as I say, that's kind of a beneficial thing because if people, if I, if I had the audience I have now, which I mean, it's not, not to say that it's like a huge audience, but it's considerable. Um, and I started writing. I would be so much more terrified, <laughs> right? Like you publish something and now the, the knowledge that thousands of people will see it can be crippling. So it's actually, mm -hmm. it's good to start when you don't have that audience because you can build confidence in yourself, build your skill set. Um, I know that it, for a lot of people, it's frustrating because you think, you know, I don't have, there's almost, again, like a chicken and egg thing where I don't have mm -hmm. an audience. I'm going to publish this thing. No one's going to see it. I can publish something next week and the week after how will anyone discover this thing, right? You need the audience to find your blog post, but apparently you need blog posts to build an audience. Um, <laughs> and I think the answer is just that uh, luck definitely plays a role, but mm -hmm. you can give yourself more chances, right? It's like every time you publish a blog post, you're rolling the dice. And if you publish 200 blog posts, which I think I've probably come close to that number by now, uh, maybe nice. not, maybe like 150. Um, eventually like people start noticing <laughs> yep. especially like i think that's you know i was on medium at the time medium was good because uh your article will start being shown on other people there's like that syndication right. aspect dev.2 i think is a good way to do that now i wouldn't mm -hmm. i think medium has kind of jumped the shark a little bit there um yeah so that's like one way to do it um ultimately though it's just about write stuff that is helpful share it um, and eventually people just by dumb luck, right? Like people will stumble upon things. Uh, maybe they'll have some obscure Google search where your thing is the first result. And maybe that person has a hundred thousand followers on Twitter and they'll share it. Uh, so it's certainly just a matter of luck, but you can kind of build your own luck by publishing things. Um, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Uh, have you moved everything over to your own property now from medium? You know, um, are you... <laughs> it's funny. Cause I thought about doing that. Yeah. And then I looked at those blog posts and I thought, no, nah, these are better. <laughs> I'll, leave, <laughs> leave I'll leave them where they are. That's yeah, funny. exactly. And it, I actually, one of them I thought was good. So, or one of them I thought had potential. So I did bring it over, but I spent probably yeah. four hours rewriting it to make it like up to my current standards. And so it just, it wasn't the quick win that I was looking yeah. for. Um, one thing I did want to, before I forget, um, one of the questions I see most often is how do I find like things to write about that haven't already been written about a hundred times? Sure. And my answer is always just write it anyway, yeah. <laughs> because I think that there's like a bunch of things that factor into this, right? One is that there is no perfect distribution. So like the assumption then, if there's already a hundred articles, like it almost makes you think that, well, someone will have to scroll through a hundred other articles before they see mm. mine. That's not really how it works though, right? Like right. it doesn't matter how many other articles exist. There will be people who see your article first, especially when you think that like Google rewards recency. So it, yeah. uh, if you publish something, granted that's a bit of a slow, uh, you know, it takes usually a few months before you start showing up, but you will show up before something that was published six years ago because Google mm. likes to have fresh results. Um, and yeah, I think that it's just a matter of, uh, you will have a unique way of covering this thing that has been blogged about a thousand times. And that unique way might be the perfect way for someone reading. So mm -hmm. like I published a blog post recently on intro to CSS transitions, which mm -hmm. is like one of the, it's gotta be like one of the most common blog posts about CSS because it's a 
common source of confusion. And there's, you know, I'm sure that there are hundreds of thousands of results um, on that very topic. But I knew that I had kind of a unique way of uh, teaching it or explaining it because I, I had in my mind this idea of a visualization that draws every frame in an animation and just almost like uh, if you took a flip book and then arranged all the pages side by side. Um, mm -hmm. I had, anyway, just, I mean, the details of that aren't super important, but I had this idea for how to teach this thing. And even though it had been, uh, it, it was a very, very uh, competitive topic, I guess, or like a very high traffic or high competition topic. Um, sure. It's now, I think, my second or third most popular blog post, because even right. though, and you got to think there have been people who read that blog post who had already read blog posts about intro mm -hmm. to CSS transition, but it, nevertheless, it was still helpful for them. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and a large part of that, too, the way that I think about it is, yes, there are uh, possibly many other articles that have been written, other videos that have been produced, etc., on that topic. But if there are, that's an, an indication that the market there is quite large. And where there are large markets, I think there are always there's always going to be room for for different takes on on a topic mm. or or you know different spins, uh, added more added value. You know, I, I don't think that it's not zero sum, right? That's what you're indicating. I think mm -hmm. in a lot of this is like it's not, it's not the zero sum thing. Yep. Adding an additional piece of content there um, is going to be valuable anyway that you crunch any way you crunch it. So um, yeah, I think that's that's great advice. Um, so, you know, I'd love to, to move into kind of your ideas for what's beyond this. What, where do you go next after this course is all, all done? You mentioned that you'll, you'll finish up the course, uh, hopefully make it open in the future. Um, what else do you hope to do entrepreneurially? This is kind of your, this is your, your first, I suppose, entrepreneurial venture, right? Um, do you want to do kind of more courses? Do you want to get into building a product, anything like that? Or, or what are you thinking for, for the future? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Um, my initial thought was that I would probably like crank out two-ish courses a year for the foreseeable. You can do like, because I do have a lot of things I could uh, competently teach. What I've learned doing this course is I could spend years on just this one course. Because <laughs> right. like, you know, my, my honestly starting to seem a little bit optimistic target is to finish it in August, which will have meant I spent a year on it. But there's already so many things I want to change. Uh, I mean, you know, there's a lot of this is just my own perfectionism. But there is, you know, as I learn more, first of all, but also as I get feedback that like, hey, the, you know, like one thing I would like to do is I'd like to switch the order of modules. Because right now we see hmm. style components and like the idea of component architectures in module three. I think that's a little early. But if I move that, then I'm going to have to refilm and redo all of the content right. from like modules four and five, because now I can't assume that you know that. Right. So right. I could, what I imagine I will do is I will launch this course in August and immediately start working on AV2 because uh, I think that nice. I would enjoy doing that and I think it would be useful. Um, I also, like, there's uh, Jacques Hopkins, I think is his name. He's uh, the author of a piano course. And uh, I forget what it's called. It has some, like, piano in X number of days. Um, he's worked on this one course for seven years. And hmm. it continues to bring in like pretty significant revenue. In fact, it's growing mm -hmm. every year. Um, so there's certainly like like what I've come to realize is I don't need to have like this rich library of courses. I can just yep. get I can create like a, a better and better version of this thing. Um, but your mm -hmm. question was more like you know post courses. And honestly, mm -hmm. I haven't really thought that far ahead. I I'm, I like the idea that. Uh, if this course, you know, even just from the pre-launch, honestly, it has given me enough uh, flexibility that I think I'm already kind of good in this way. But uh, essentially, I just like the idea once this course is done is of just exploring what seems interesting to me. Uh, mm -hmm. Like I know that uh, something I did uh, maybe a year and a half ago or so was I built a level editor for Beat Saber. Uh, so oh, I cool. want to work more on that. Um, I also like the, uh, there was, uh, I want a Twitter tool that I'm, I'm not happy with the Twitter tools, but, uh, Randall, Randall Khanna has built, Randall, yep. uh, CrowdFox, which has like right. solved all of those problems for me. Like I did have it in the back of my head that like at some point it would be fun to build a Twitter tool that would like help people that are trying to grow their following, like essentially just take a very analytical approach and say, okay, for the people that uh, like find people that are doing similar things that I want to be doing, but really well, um, and like help me understand why they're doing so well and what I can learn from that. Mm -hmm. uh, and also just like 
help me uh, understand of the people who are following me, like which people would be really well suited for me to engage with, right? People that either have large following themselves or who have really aligned interests. Like essentially just trying to take the bulk of information that you have on Twitter and condense it into like actionable next steps. Um, so yeah. that was like an idea I had, but CrowdFox seems to be doing exactly what I what I think is uh, worth doing. So, I mean, I think that's, uh, and honestly, I think that, you know, it, the fun thing for me now is just that I, if I have these random ideas, I can spend a month on it and just see like, will this go anywhere? Right. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. Well, if you're if you're taking requests, I don't know if you are, but if you are taking requests, I could certainly uh, see a course on design, perhaps one that supplements this uh, CSS course, uh, to to be well received and very welcome. I think you know. Uh, I mean, you've probably seen uh, Adam and Steve's design uh, book that they released. Yep. I think there is a big need for that amongst uh, JavaScript developers, uh, especially, and I am one of those people. So if you're taking requests, <laughs> that might be something that will do uh, do quite well. we'll you know, I have two ideas for what I want my next course to be. That is one of them, uh, which is essentially okay. just like design fundamentals for developers, which I always like, and I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, feel a little funny doing that just because I don't really consider myself a designer. But I also recognize that I know enough about design to be able to provide value to other developers. Right. And the fact that I'm a developer, I think will help. Uh, and that's honestly part of uh, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but one of the cool things about doing CSS for JavaScript developers is being able to leverage the fact that they already know a bunch of stuff about JavaScript. You know, right. I mean, I think that uh, whenever you're learning anything new, it's much harder to like teach someone something brand new from scratch than it is to like copy paste something they already know and then make the changes. So one example of that is uh, in CSS, you have this idea of the cascade, right? It's the mm -hmm. idea that many different styles might affect the same element and there's these complex rules for which ones apply. Um, that's, if you think about the spread operator in JavaScript, right? You can think of like applied styles is equal to an object where first you spread in the least mm -hmm. specific styles, like the tag selectors, then you spread in the class ones and the ID ones and the inline mm -hmm. styles. Um, so like, you know, that is a complex thing that I can explain a little bit more quickly because I can leverage the fact that there's this pre-existing knowledge. And I think the same thing would be true for design. So I'm excited about that. Uh, the other thing I, really cool. I, I might want to do is on whimsical interaction and animations. Mm, um, yep. So do, uh, if anyone has thoughts as to which of those two or something else I should do, please do reach out on Twitter and let me know. Awesome. Cool. Well, this is a good spot to wrap. Um, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and chatting about this today. This was this was great. Where can people go to find out your uh, about your stuff and, and specifically your course? We'll, we'll link everything up, so I'll copy down the links here. Yeah, so the course uh, can be found at css4js.dev. It's the letter css dash. F-O-R, it's like CSS and JS, but so it's like a play on that, css4js.dev. Um, I can be found on Twitter at Josh W. Como, and my last name is spelled C-O-M-E-A-U. I also have a blog that has a bunch of content in the same kind of domain, which is joshwcomo.com. Awesome. We will link all of that up in the show notes. Great. Well, Josh, thank you so much once again. This was great. Hopefully um, we can do another round at some point in the future, um, maybe after full launch or something like that at some point, some point down the line. Uh, until then, all the best with your continued um, you know, effort putting together the rest of the course. Um, and you know, when it opens back up again, continued sales, I'm very happy to hear that it's gone so well. And uh, yeah, big congrats on that. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Ryan. This has been a blast. Thank you so much for tuning into the Entrepreneurial Coder podcast today. This has been episode 46 with Josh Como. You can find show notes with links to all the resources that Josh mentioned over at ecpodcast.io. There you can also subscribe. Go to ecpodcast.io slash subscribe. And if you'd be up for leaving a rating or review, that would be awesome. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash coderpodcast.